Well, hi, and welcome to The Christian Contrast, where we talk about how walking with Jesus leads us to live differently than the world around us. And I'm excited this is the fourth of four episodes about marriage. And the whole idea behind this series of episodes was that where Scripture leads us when it comes to husbands and wives and marriage is very different than the motivations or the approaches that we have in our world. Not, not only when it comes to the commitment within marriage and, and, and our attitudes towards divorce and staying committed in marriage, but also just in how we approach it in the goal of marriage. So I do want to encourage you, if, if this is the first time you've tuned into one of these episodes, afterwards, I encourage you to go back and listen to the other ones where we covered um, Ephesians chapter 5, and we covered Matthew chapter 19, and then um, some verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't need to listen to them in sequential order. That That's not terribly important, but I do encourage you to listen to those because they set a strong foundation of what the New Testament teaches about marriage. And today we're going to go through um, the fourth passage that we're covering in this series, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And for each of these episodes, I, I've sort of put a, a tagline or a title on what these are about. And for this one, if we're going to put a title on this, this passage is about true beauty, true strength. Um, true beauty for women, true strength for men. And, and I'll just say this in, in going into it. Um, if we're going to try to boil down, not just marriage, but sort of manhood and womanhood, that, that God has created us in his image, male and female, and that there's a unique contribution that men bring to the world and a unique contribution that women bring to the world. And there's massive overlap in what we do. Most of the commands in the Bible are for all of us, regardless of whether we're a man or a woman. But there is something unique we all bring to the table. And, and to me, if, if we're going to really sum it up, I, I haven't come up with something better than women bring beauty into the world, men bring strength into the world. Um, doesn't mean that men bring zero beauty into the world or that women bring zero strength into the world. Um, in fact, men and women, I think strength comes through in us in, in different ways. But I think if, if we're going to boil it down, both physically and then also in just the way we approach the world, women bring the great gift of beauty into the world, men bring the great gift of strength into the world. And that's going to come through in this passage. Um, I'll read through it, but, but as another um, caveat, the, this passage is famous, and one of the reasons why it's famous is because it's seven verses on marriage, six of them are to wives, and one of them is to husbands. And so people make different jokes about why this is the case, and you know, all right, maybe men can only keep track of one thing, or just being a man is less complicated than being a woman, which I personally think is true. Um, but but I think we actually can discern a reason why there's six verses to the wives and one verse to the husbands, and that's because the context leading up to these verses, and the context is primarily in First Peter chapter two, is that Paul is talking mostly to people who are under authority and their lives under somebody's authority um, are, are challenging. And so talking to citizens under the government and knowing that the, the government, and especially in, in Peter's day in the first century with some of the things Christians were dealing with, the government is not necessarily pro-Christian. The government is, is going to put you in a difficult situation, but, but you're still submitting as a citizen appropriately, even in a challenging situation. Um, he talks about servants and masters and the idea of, right, anybody who's in the, the servant or the slave position, it's not ideal. It's not what you're going after. It's, it's not what you desire. And so he's talking to people who are in submission and challenging situations. So when he flows into talking to, to husbands and wives, it makes sense that he's going to spend the most time talking to wives because wives are in the submission position within marriage. And also he's going to address that some wives are in a 
a situation where it's not only difficult to submit in any situation, but it's especially difficult to submit because some of these women are married to difficult men. So that's why I think Paul really focuses in, I think the fact that he says anything to husbands, where in the other passages, he's not really addressing masters and he's not really addressing um, the, those who are in government authority, just shows that he has something in mind here for marriage, that he knows he's going to be talking to more people who are reading this within the Christian community who are married to each other than that he's going to be talking to people who are in power as, as masters um, or as government officials. So that's the background for this, and now we're going to go through this just part by part. Um, I'll read the first two verses. The, again, six verses for, for wives, one verse for husbands. Um, it starts off by saying, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to, the, uh, to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, and the word here would be the message of the gospel, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And so you might have noticed a, a little bit of sort of a, a play on words there that Peter's getting at. Um, if any of your husbands, wives, if any of your husbands don't believe the word, win them over without words and win them over by your pure and reverent behavior. Um, and so, so a few things on this. We've already talked, again, I encourage you to go back and uh, listen to the previous episodes if you haven't. We've already talked about the subject of submission, especially in dealing with um, Ephesians chapter 5 in an extended way. So I won't go way deep into it here other than just to say this is a constant command in scriptural passages about marriage. Um, Ephesians 5 talks about the idea that the husband is the head of the wife, the wife submits to the husband. This is not meant to be abusive or coercive or heavy-handed. It's meant to be order within the household, that men are called to step up and take responsibility. Um, we're, we're not told in Ephesians that husbands should try to be the head. We're told that husbands are the head, that God holds husbands responsible in that way for that level of leadership and initiative within the homes and that wives are meant to submit, which does not mean sitting and saying nothing, does not mean just going along with it. It doesn't mean you're not giving advice and giving uh, giving insight to, to the husband and, and making decisions in a collaborative way. In a good marriage, you're collaborating, and sort of the idea of a husband needing to pull rank should be a very rare occasion. There are times where it may, may need to happen, but you don't want that to be the norm within your marriage. Um, and, and so going into it, what I do want to say is, uh, I feel like a lot of churches and a lot of pastors, anytime anything about submission comes up, we're very sort of backpedaling and apologetic. We do not need to be apologetic. God is wise. God knows what he's doing. We're all called to submit in some way. And so we, we don't need to be afraid of this idea. And what I do think is those who, it's not hard for me to understand how this is difficult within our culture and how we need to do some extra work to, to make sure we're understanding rightly what's said here in scripture. Um, at the same time, I think there reaches a certain point where we've got to decide if we believe the Bible or not. Um, so for anybody who reads about submission is like, I need some help with that. Hey, totally understandable. You should get some help with that. You should go through the passages, make sure you're not misunderstanding submission. Make sure you understand the, the clear biblical truth that as men and women, we are equally created in God's image. Um, in fact, that's going to come up in a way later on in verse 7. Um, but we have to reach a point where we say, do we believe the Bible or not? And are we going to reach a point where we say, I don't like this part of the Bible, and so I'm just going to ignore it, or I'm going to try to explain it away? 
Um, by the way, as an extra resource, because I'm always looking for extra resources, there's a guy named Mike Winger. Um, some of you may know about him. He does a podcast and you can either watch it on YouTube or you can just listen to the episodes, um, which I like doing because it's easy to, to do that in my car. Um, he is a guy that goes through lots of extended passages of the Bible. He does long form podcasts. So if you think I talk long on these, he does two, three hour podcast episodes sometimes. And he is in the middle of doing a series about what the Bible says about women in ministry. And within that, he's also done some episodes in addressing the marriage passages. Um, highly recommend his channel. There's nobody that I agree with hundred percent, but he is doing good work. And I think good, solid biblical work. And so if you want to dig in deeper to to what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood within the church and within marriage, um, go check out his podcast, highly recommend. Um, and so all that is to say, when Paul is talking about, or when Peter's talking about this, we have to reach a point of saying, all right, whatever our hangups are, we have to receive what scripture is telling us. So it tells wives to submit, and again, it, it gives a specific scenario. It says, sort of, especially because some of you are going to be in situations where your husbands do not believe the word, which probably doesn't just mean that these are husbands who aren't living perfectly, but that these are husbands who are not believers. They're not believers in Jesus. It's a Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband. And the idea behind what he's saying seems to be, all right, you want to win your husband. And the way that you're going to win him is not with words, but with your purity and reverence in your life. And th this is going to lead a little bit into what we'll talk about in verses three and four, but, but first just a pause on this to say, there are some people that look at this and they say, well, Peter calls wives to submit, but the only reason he calls them to submit is because that might be an evangelistic tool to win their husbands. So he's not saying that all wives submit in, in all marriages. He's just saying wives that are married to unbelievers in a situation, in a culture where they would have been expected to submit, they should go ahead and submit because that's an evangelistic tool. Um, I, I want to say, I, I think that this is bad Bible reading for anybody to come away with that for a couple reasons. The first is that this is not the only passage that talks about wives submitting to husbands. You can go to Ephesians chapter five. You can go to um, Colossians chapter three, verses 18 and 19. You can go to Titus two. I think it's around verse four or five that talks about this. So this is, this is a constant in scripture. And the other reason why this is just bad Bible reading is because when Peter gets to the point that he wants to give an example to wives, he gives the example of the way that Sarah responded to Abraham. Abraham not only is clearly a believer, but he is the father of faith. And so if we conclude from this, if, if anybody's going to look at this and say, well, th this is only wives, Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands in a culture that would, that would expect this, that they need to follow these instructions, that's not the case. It is an evangelistic tool in the same way that we're told, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The idea is not the only reason why good works are positive is because people might see them and they might be an evangelistic tool. We do the good works whether they're seen or not, but one of the impacts of them is that they are an evangelistic tool. So that's the starting point. And again, he says, all right, how are you going to win your husband? Not primarily with words, but by your behavior. And then in verses three and four, he describes that kind of behavior. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as an elaborate hairstyle or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, one of the things that I love about this, and again, I, I started this by saying we're going to talk about true beauty, true strength, true beauty that women are pursuing, true strength that men are meant to pursue. Um, 
What he says here assumes that women are pursuing being beautiful. He just makes the raw assumption. He doesn't say, and, and for some of you, beauty is important. He just lays it out there. Beauty is important to you, and so here's the kind of beauty that should be most important to you. Not the kind of outward beauty that has to do with outward adornment and the clothes and the hairstyles that you have, but the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which he says is worth a lot to God and also is unfading. Um, we all know as we get older, I, I'm in my 40s, I, I know, we all know what happens when you get older. Um, Proverbs 31 talks about the idea that beauty fades and charm is deceitful, but a woman who fears the Lord, that that's something that's lasting. So he's pointing women to say, all right, go after the beauty that lasts. Now, it, what, what Peter is saying here, he's not painting a picture where women are called to sort of abandon any pursuit of looking good or looking beautiful. Um, I, I think there is just sort of an assumed reality that's going to be part of womanhood, and there's not something wrong about that. But if we're thinking of a parallel, um, Paul in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about uh, physical exercise and sort of physical training, and what he says is, all right, physical exercise or physical training, it has some value, but training for godliness has, has great value in this life and in the life to come. So what he doesn't say is, don't eat right, don't exercise, none of that matters. What he says is, all right, that does have value, but that shouldn't be the main thing that you're after. The, the main thing that you're after in life should not be being the most physically healthy person you can possibly be. That, that's a pursuit that shouldn't take first priority for you. And I think similar, he's saying to women, all right, I, I, I'm not saying just don't shower and don't worry about your hair at all. He, he's not saying pay no attention to that, but he's saying if, if that's where you think that your beauty is coming from, if that's the kind of beauty that you are focused, that you are transfixed on cultivating, you're focusing in the wrong place. You should be focusing on the inner beauty, the beauty that doesn't fade, the beauty that's deeply valuable to God, and that's the beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit. Now, here's the deal. When we get into passages in the Bible that speak to men and women, um, sometimes it's worth looking at what gets emphasized. And so uh, let's pause and think of the gentle and, squat, uh, gentle and quiet spirit. Um, gentleness, we could say, well, well, that's that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody's supposed to be gentle. Fair enough. Everybody's supposed to be gentle. Is everybody supposed to be quiet? And it's like, well, yeah, you know, where, where is it? I think it's in um, uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, or, or no, I, it, I should have looked this up before. I mean, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Timothy um, chapter 2 talk about sort of living quiet lives in a way that we're not making problems for governing authorities or for the people around us. So we could say, all right, th there's a parallel of this. What he's saying to the women, there might be a broad sense in which it's applicable to men also and applicable to all Christians, but he highlights it here. He says, this is great beauty, specifically great feminine beauty, the gentle and quiet spirit. Now, in a way, this could seem funny because if we're talking about our actual lives, we all know women tend to do a lot more talking than men. In fact, a lot of women are like, why doesn't my husband talk to me more? Well, I, I'm trying to draw him out. I'm getting these one-word answers. I wish he would share more about what's going on. Um, so, so it's fair to kind of ask, well, what is it talking? Is it saying women aren't supposed to talk a lot? And that's what this is, beauty is here? And I don't think that's what's going on. I, I think context is going to help us. So, so let's start with the specific and broaden it out. The specific scenario that Paul is wanting to point towards is the kind of beauty that you're pursuing here is going to be especially put on display and especially useful if you're a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man that needs to be won over. Saying the way that you're going to win him over is probably not through nagging 
and not through browbeating, which can be a temptation. Um, women sometimes can just talk circles around us men, and, and we can get lost, and we can be like, I, I, I don't know what's going on. Um, it, it, it was the joke. I, I saw some um, joke about a, a man uh, going to a restaurant and saying, you know, I'd, uh, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but said something like, you know, um, I like my steak the, the same way I like my, um, the, the times I win arguments with my wife. And they said, rare it is. And it is sort of the joke. I think this is one of the reasons why men don't typically win arguments with women. It's because women are able to talk circles around us. So you could do this. You're like, all right, you're a Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband. You might be able to browbeat him, manipulate him, run circles around him, and he might not have good answers for you. Or let's broaden it out and say, all right, maybe it's not just a, a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man. Maybe it's in general looking at a, a woman who is looking to try to get her man to do the things that maybe legitimately he should be doing that maybe he should be more involved with the kids and he should be taking the lead spiritually and he should be eating better or going to bed on time or not watching so much sports or something. Maybe it's a legitimate thing. She, she has a legitimate reason to try to get him to do it, but she's going to look to get him to do it by nagging, browbeating, manipulation, talking around in circles, and maybe eventually he'll give in. But Paul is saying, all right, that, that's not the kind of beauty that lasts. That, that's not what you're going for. What you're going for is to win him without words by your reverent, and pure behavior, and that specifically comes through in the gentle and quiet spirit. And where he goes in verses 5 and 6, I think, go to a really powerful place, because there can be a lot of fear for women. And I think, understandably, um, fear, fear can be a big part of women's lives, and especially if you're looking at this idea of, like, all right, uh, I'm not only having my life joined to my husband, um, and husbands and wives both deal with the fact that, that your decisions highly affect the other one, but for women in particular, if you're saying, all right, I'm looking to follow the lead of this man. I really want to make sure that he does it right. And so I've got to make sure, I, I've, I've got to make sure I get him to do it right. That Paul is saying, the gentle and quiet spirit is the true beauty. And now look at the example he gives in verses five and six. He says, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn yourselves. Quick pause. He says, I'm going to point you to the holy women of old, and here's how they did this. They put their hope in God. Not in their husbands. They put their hope in God. Even if my husband never changes, your hope is in God. Even if my husband gets a little bit better, your hope is in God. Even if I have the best husband in the world, your hope is in God. Your hope is not that your marriage is perfect or that your husband is, becomes the man that you think that he should be, or maybe even legitimately that he should be. Your hope is in God. And that allowed the holy women of old to be able to act in a way that was appropriate and that was beautiful before God. So he goes on, he says, they submitted themselves to their own husbands. So once again, he talks about submission as just the norm, the example for, for women who are following God. And then he says, like Sarah, so this is Abraham's wife, Sarah, back from the book of Genesis, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called, her, uh, called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Um, now, I, I want to get to the fear statement because I think it's significant, but, but just going back, so he says, all right, Abraham and Sarah, here's the example of Sarah. She obeyed Abraham, which probably is referring to the idea that when Abraham left his homeland, she went with him, um, and, and that was a big deal because Abraham was leading her in a way that seemed very counterintuitive, but she went along and submitted to him in that. And then it says that um, she called him her Lord. Um, now, this is a tricky part. People are like, what is he saying here? Is he saying wives are always supposed to call their husband Lord? Because don't hold your breath. I, I don't think I'm going to do that. 
Um, th that's not the big point that's going on here. And, and it's tough because we don't have an exact parallel sort of in English to, to say what this would look like today. Sometimes the, the way that this is translated would be more like, sir, but that's not quite it. It, it. it does engender the idea of respect. And I think what it basically points towards is the idea of Sarah submitting to Abraham and deferring to him and his leadership. That's the big picture of what it's saying. Um, it, Lord, by the way, was used both Old Testament and New Testament, not just to refer to God, but, but to refer to sort of a, a term of respect to somebody who's in authority. That's all I think that's going on here. And the one time in the Old Testament that you see Sarah actually refer to Abraham as her Lord, it's in Genesis 18, and he's not even in the room when she does it. She just refers to him when the promise of her getting pregnant is given, that she says, you know, will I have this pleasure with my Lord after I'm old? So the big picture here that Peter seems to be pointing towards is, if we look to the example of the, the godly women who came before they trusted in God, they put their hope in God, and they submitted to their husbands. And then he says, again at the end of it, um, you are her daughters, you're Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now this, I think, is a really, really important part, and I want to hit it before moving on to the husband um, verse. Um, this is important for this reason. If you're in a situation, if you're a wife, you're going to deal with fear. Um, and you're going to deal with fear because if you're looking to follow what Scripture has laid out for us, you're looking to submit yourself to your husband, and that puts you in a vulnerable position. His decisions are going to highly affect what your life looks like, and that's scary to put that in somebody else's hands. So there's going to be with there's going to be fear. Here's the deal: in our culture right now, probably the message that you would get is, "Here's how you put yourself in a position where you won't be afraid." You take control. You take control of your own destiny. You take control of your own lives. You make sure that you're not under anybody else's control. You deal with your fear by taking control. How Peter describes things is a 180 from that. It's totally different. What he's basically painting a picture of is if you're giving in to fear, that's when you will try to take control. That's when you will try to manipulate. That's when you will try to browbeat. That's when you will try to nag your way into getting what you want. That is a sign of you giving in to fear instead of putting your hope in God. But the women who are not giving in to fear are responding with purity and reverence, with a gentle and quiet spirit, trusting God that he is working all things together for their good, even if they're dealing with something with their husband that's really challenging. Now, to be clear on this, Peter's not painting a picture of saying, hey, as a wife, never bring up any criticism or never bring up any idea or never bring up any pushback to your husband. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is, if something needs to change in your husband's life, don't make it your job to try to control that happening. Put your hope in God. You live out your responsibility within marriage and don't give way to fear. Fear, if you give way to it, leads you to control. When you're trying to control, it's not a sign that you're fearless. It's a sign that you're fearful and fear is taken over. That's true beauty, as Peter describes it and as Scripture describes it. That the true beauty is not just your physical beauty, but it's this giant and quiet, uh, gentle and quiet spirit that you're walking before the Lord in hope and in joy because He's going to take care of you, and that makes you willing and able to submit to your husband and bring proper help and support and encouragement to him in all of this. So that's the word to the wives. Um, I'm not going to spend equal time because there's only one verse to the husbands, but I do want to talk about the husband verse because I think it's profound for a few different reasons, and it does emphasize true strength 
just as the the, uh, verses to the wives emphasize true beauty. So verse seven says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And so a couple things. First of all, when he says in the same way, um, you could say, well, well, it's not in the same way. It's a different way because he's calling wives to submit to their husbands and he's not calling husbands to submit to their wives. And that's right. Um, But when he says in the same way, you can see the big picture of what Peter is talking about is that we both have responsibilities towards each other. And so wives have responsibilities towards their husbands. Husbands have responsibilities towards their wives. So he doesn't say to husbands, hey, here's the deal. She's supposed to submit to you, and your job is to make her submit to you. He doesn't say that at all. There's no verse that talks about husbands that being part of our job to try to get our wives to submit to us. Um, What he says is you need to live with your wife, and and some translations have it um, in an understanding way. Here it says in the NIV, um, be considerate as you live with your wives. Um, the, The literal Greek is live with your wives according to knowledge. Um, this is a powerful idea that you are looking to be considerate and understanding towards your wife. And then the next part brings in the strength idea, which I think is really beautiful. Um, because he describes what it looks like to, to live with your wife and be considerate. He says, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, there's uh, obviously alarm bells go off in our culture when we hear the whole weaker partner thing, but, but just follow me on this. He says, all right, treat them with respect as a weaker partner. Show them honor as a weaker partner. Some translations have the weaker vessel. Let, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, here's the picture that Paul is painting. The picture that Paul is painting is, all right, husbands, you've got a wife. God has blessed you with a wife. She is the weaker partner in this relationship. And so the way that you respond to that is not by lording your strength over her, but by using your strength to show her honor. You're more careful. You treat her as as worthy of not lesser honor, but greater honor because of her weakness. Um, now, Now let's talk about what is he talking about when he says that she's the weaker partner? And I think we can talk about two things. One's obvious and one may not be as obvious. The first is this. Um, women are physically weaker than men. Um, everybody, a bunch of you listening to this, you're like, well, not always. True, not always. Um, but it, it's not sort of like, well, 60% of the time, the man is is more physically strong. That it, It's not 60%. It's not 80%. It's not 90%. It's probably 95 to 99% of the time. That This is almost always true. Um, it's weird that in our culture right now, we, we hesitate in saying that. We're like, well, we don't want to say that men are stronger than women. Men are stronger than women. The, the, this is just the reality. God has made us different. That's okay. It's not a slight on women. And, and we live in this, this weird thing where this shouldn't be a big deal. Um, I, I remember several years ago, there was this big controversy because um, the, the tennis player, John McEnroe, kind of the old tennis player, was in an interview and in the interview, he was talking about Serena Williams, and he said, Serena Williams is the greatest female tennis player ever to play. You know, gives her this great compliment. And the interviewer says, well, well, why qualify it as the greatest female tennis player? Why not just call her the greatest tennis player? And if you go back and listen to the interview, you can see him kind of confused. And he's like, well, well, are you talking about if she played the men? And he said, well, if she played the men, she'd be like number 700. She, you know, she'd get destroyed. And this whole thing went viral as if it was like John McEnroe is picking on Serena Williams. It's this weird thing that happens. And and I do want to bring it up just to say we're not helping ourselves when we do this whole thing where we're like, hey, women can do everything that men can do. And then we get mad when men point out, no, that can't happen. And we're like, why are you picking on the poor woman? 
it, this is silliness and we need to just stop it. It's not just professional athletes. I know the, the John McEnroe, Serena Williams thing happened several years ago, but this keeps happening. A few years ago, President Biden, Biden said this thing of, you know, to, to any women, there's nothing that a man can do that you can't do as well or better. This is just dumb. We just got to stop this. Um, and then it puts men in this weird position where if men point it out, if they're like, no, actually like that, that's not true. You know, like you, you would get creamed if you went into this other sporting arena or tried to lift weights with men. And then it's like, why are you picking on the women? It, here's the deal. Men, we, we first of all, we, we need to recognize, all right, we, we don't need to sort of like strongly hold our ground here. We, we can recognize reality, but all of us, we need to stop saying silly things about this. And we should be willing to look at the situation and say, all right, um, in almost every, 95 to 99% of relationships, um, the wife is going to be the weaker one physically. And here's part of what this means. And, and there's different people that think that part of what Peter is getting at here is that physical domination and physical abuse is absolutely out of bounds in the marriage relationship. Then when he's saying, treat her with honor as the weaker partner, that he's not saying, hey, she's weaker than you, so you can just physically dominate her and get her to, through intimidation or through physical abuse, get her to do whatever you want. He's pointing in the opposite direction. You say, no, because she's physically weaker, because she's physically more vulnerable and fragile, that means that you're all the more careful, more careful than you'd be with another guy. You're all the more careful with her. And that means not only a statement against physical abuse, but it also means when there's danger, we as men take on that danger physically. Um, if there's a noise, I, I've talked about this before, you know, if you're in bed together with your wife and there's a noise in the house, it's not 50-50, it's not Rochambeau, whose turn is it? You go and check it out. You put yourself in physical danger. You don't make her put herself in physical danger for that. It means if there's lifting things, it means, you know, it's great to have men to open jars, you know, all of this stuff that we sometimes joke about. This is valuable. Men, we bring our strength to the table um, because of the physical vulnerability of our wives. Um, so that's the first part of the weaker vessel. Now, the second part, some of you are going to object to, but I'm still going to talk about it. Um, I think that there also is an emotional fragility that's built in with this also. Um, when, when you think about the difference uh, of what women go through, the different challenges that women go through, it's pretty profound. You know, all of us have different difficulties, and obviously some men have all kinds of physical uh, difficulties and challenges to go through. But when you think of just the life of an average woman, just not, not a woman who's in an extreme situation, but the average woman, um, her life is going to include menstruation, which is no fun physically and messes with all the hormones. The average woman, especially the average wife, is going to deal with pregnancy, which again, not only is a physical vulnerability, but does all kinds of different things to, to sort of your spirit and your hormones, and is going to go through menopause, which is both physical and hormonal and emotional. So when you look at the situations, sometimes there's pushback against the idea women are, are very, very emotional. Um, I, I think this is another one where because we're trying to get to this ideological point of sort of equality through sameness, we're, we're shutting our eyes to just the basic reality. There is a reason why almost every wife wants her husband to be more emotional, pr emotionally present with him, and why there's rarely a husband that you could find that says, I just wish my wife would, would share her emotions with me. Women tend to wear their emotions much more out there, and so there's a stabilizing, and that there's a powerful strength that men can bring in helping to bring strength and stability when the emotions are going in all kinds of different places. This is one of the key ways that husbands can love their wives is by being able to not take things deeply personally when we're in the middle of an argument or when your wife's in an emotionally fragile state. 
I think part of being the weaker vessel does go along with that. And part of the strength that we as men bring is to say, okay, I am not going to insist on winning this argument, even if I know the facts and I know I'm right. Um, and I'm not going to ins insist on making sure I get a full apology from her when I was kind of wrong and she was kind of wrong and I think she should apologize first. Or I am not going to insist on sort of a, a tit for tat with everything. But you say, all right, if there's a certain level of strength that we're bringing to the table, there is great value of saying, I'm going to use that strength to care for my wife, who in these different ways is the weaker partner. Now, a, a, a quick qualification on this. The fact that women tend to be more emotionally vulnerable and fragile, that is not a liability. That often is a strength. And one of the reasons why it's a strength is because it helps us as men to be able to see that there's more than just the facts to a situation. Um, there have been a number of times just uh, with our sons where I've been ready to just sort of lay out, this happened, now this needs to happen. And Karina has brought up issues that point towards, right, there's a different, there's a bigger emotional landscape to this. We need to look at the nuance of the situation and the fact that I could say, well, she's more emotionally fragile. Well, okay, but her being more in tune with her emotions put her in a position to see something that I was not going to see. This is not a liability that this is a strength. And now look at how the verse ends. Um, after saying, uh, with respect is the weaker partner, he says, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. So, so two things, um, as heirs with you, some translations have co-heirs of the grace of life. This is the basic idea. He says, um, husband, you and your wife are co-heirs of the grace of life, which is debated, but I think he's talking about salvation. I think he's talking about being children of God through Jesus. He's saying, you are co-heirs in that. It's not that you're the heir and she's your assistant. You are co-heirs together. And so she's going to look to honor you through submission and through true, true beauty, and you're going to look to honor her through, um, through gentleness and understanding and through using your strength in the appropriate way. You're going to honor each other because you're co-heirs. And then he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, there's two takes on this. Um, one take is that where Peter is going is he's saying, husbands and wives should, should uh, be praying together, and uh, you're not going to be praying together if you're mistreating your wife. So, so don't let that get in the way. Um, the other one, which I lean towards, and I think is probably the right interpretation of what he's saying here, is if you're not treating your wife right, God's not going to listen to your prayers. Um, God's not going to pay attention to your prayers because you are violating one of the core things that God has called you to do. You are mistreating his daughter in this way. Why is he suddenly going to grant you all these different requests when you are not fulfilling one of the key callings for your life? Um, the stakes are big here. If, if I'm writing this interpretation, he's saying, God is not going to take seriously your prayers if you are mistreating your wife. That's how seriously God takes it. And that's why it's so important that we as men bring our strength appropriately to our marriages in ways that are a gift to our wives, and that women bring their beauty appropriately to their marriages in ways that they are a gift to their husband. Um, women bring beauty into the world, and thank God for that. Men bring strength into the world, and thank God for that. And when we both bring that in marriage, we have the opportunity for something that's beautiful, for something that shows something great to the world, for something that's a benefit to our children, and something that's a gospel-like, just as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, I hope you found this helpful. 
Again, any feedback on this, any pushback on this, you can comment on the YouTube videos or you can respond to that. We, we put all of our Christian Contrast podcasts up on YouTube and also you can find them on lbf.church. So love getting to do this. Um, if you have feedback, not only on this episode, but on this whole four-week series in general, you can feel free just to leave comments on that. Um, I look forward to, as we continue the Christian Contrast and move on to some other topics, um, as we move forward with that, we drop episodes of this every two weeks, so we'll be back with, in two weeks with another episode. And thanks so much for taking the time to listen, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again in two weeks. 